Well, as I mentioned, uh, we are um, in a season that is called Lent, and uh, we normally Lent is more more weeks than this. But uh, our last series called "Getting Off the Soapbox" was that a helpful series for you? Yeah, helpful for me too. Um, went a little bit long, so we basically have three weeks till Palm Sunday and then Easter. It's crazy how fast everything is going, and uh, so we're going to begin a series uh, called "Leave It." And because it is Lent, um, it's, Lent is a season, just for those of you who aren't um, familiar with the Bible or the church year, Lent is a season that leads up to Easter. Lent is not an idea that's in the Bible, okay? It's not like God didn't give the 11th commandment, thou shalt prosper, practice Lent. You know, it's just not in there. Um, but Lent is one of the oldest observations in the Christian calendar. Um, early church father Irenaeus, who was uh, born at 130 A.D., wrote of such a season that precedes Easter, and he said there should be at least three to four days where we are stopping and we're reflecting as to why God had to send Jesus to die on a cross and why then he rose him uh, from, he was risen from the dead. And so like all Christian holidays uh, and, and, uh, and holy days, it's changed over the years to now where it's 40 days where we observe the season of Lent, um, but its purpose has always been the same for all of us. Self-examination and confession and promising to change, uh, promising to change the way I think about my sinful life, promising to change and move away from sin and being more, uh, more Christ-like, being more like Jesus. So to help us with that, um, we thought, well, we have three weeks, we're going to use, take a cue from one of our, our Lutheran church fathers, Martin, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, who at the very early, let me, I'm giving you a little bit of church history that sets us up for what we're going to be talking about. Martin Luther, who was one of the, who was the, the main reformer, actually one of the main reformers in the early days of the Reformation, he realized that a lot of people were starting to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, and people were going, well, now that we're not Roman Catholics anymore, how, how do we worship? What does our worship look like? So Martin Luther, you know, do we do something totally different or do we do what we've always been doing? So Martin Luther took uh, the, the mass, the Deutsche Masse, which is the German mass at the time, and he took parts of that worship service and, and put it into a form that we call our Lutheran liturgy. Now, again, that's changed over the years. That was back in 1536 or so. Uh, and, and so it's changed over the years. But there's one part that we at at Trinity say uh, in our liturgical service at our downtown campus every Sunday, and that thousands and thousands of churches around the world every weekend say this or or, or a close confession that looks like this. And if you're, raise your hand if you grew up Lutheran, that's kind of your roots, and and, okay. So you're going to see this and go, I'm home, kind of thing, okay? So it's this. Part of the prayer is this, and this is preceding going to communion. Um, The congregation prays, most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you. Now get this. We've sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Now we're going to be using those three over the next three weeks. And how do we do that? Well, it's by what we've done, but it's also by what we've left Undone. The things that we're, we know we should be doing, the, the, the right things that God presents to us and we just, we just decide not to do, the things we've left undone, we've not loved you with our whole heart. And then Martin Luther, as he's writing this prayer and taking parts of, parts of it from the Roman Catholic Mass, um, 
dives deeper. Well, let me give some specifics. And he says, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, as a prayer, have mercy on us, God. Forgive us, God. Renew us, God. And lead us. Why? So that you and I, the church, every, the world, so that we can delight in your will, in God's will, and that we can walk in his ways, not for our benefit or not for our glory, but to the glory of his holy name. So Lent really gets at, gets at the deep cut heart root of who we are as fallen human beings. And, and confess. so we, we confess, which is, everybody kind of knows, I'm confessing, I'm saying I'm sorry. But then the other part is we repent. Greek word means basically change your mind about that sin that you're confessing, moving away from it. In essence, we're leaving that sin. We're, we're, we're putting a stake in the ground saying, I'm leaving that sin behind as I confess it. So that's the title, Leave It, but I'm actually more excited about the subtitle of our series. And the subtitle of our series is, you know, Leave It's the main title. The subtitle is, Because There's Something Better Ahead. We don't just go, we don't just leave something and go, I'm just going to put that away if we're not moving towards something else. That's why God sent Jesus. He didn't just send us to save us from our sins, but to give us life. So we're always leaving and moving towards something. Often in the church, especially when it comes to God's boundaries, you know, we hear what we shouldn't do. Ten commandments, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, or don't commit adultery, don't misuse God's name, you know, and, but we rarely hear why he said that. And if you've been with us over the last couple of years, we talked through God's boundaries in several different areas, and a couple of the key verses answer this question. Why does God give us, and if, if you're not a church person, you're here just because you're visiting, and you're like, God is just this God of rules. Why does he give those boundaries? Why does he give those rules? It's because Leviticus 18, if you remember, I give you these commands, God says, so that you can have, so you can have life, so it can be a beautiful life. John 3 and John 10, Jesus, it says, Jesus didn't come to condemn you. I don't know if you knew that. You know, maybe your church tradition is like, oh, all I hear is, I'm a sinner, and Jesus came to do something. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I'm just a sinner. Maybe that's your experience, or maybe that's your thought. Jesus came not to condemn you in your sin, but he came to save you and to give you full life. So that's what we talk about during Lent, of, what God, of our sinfulness, but why God has those boundaries, but then also confessing and leaving behind some of the behaviors and, and the sinful ways that we have. So today, uh, the first area we're going to focus on in confession and repentance is this area of our thoughts, our minds. Your thoughts are, and this is from Joyce Meyer, if anybody knows who that is. She wrote a, uh, a helpful book called Battlefield of the Mind several years ago. Um, your thoughts, she says, are the first battlefield that Satan attacks. It's the target that he has on you, is your mind. He knows that if he can disrupt your thoughts about the truth, we're seeing this in our society, if he could disrupt the thoughts about what truth is, uh, then defeat is right around the corner. He knows that if he can get you to just give in to the mountains of opportunities to sin in our thought life every moment of every day, that he's kind of won the day. So the question then becomes, well, does Satan put thoughts into our head? Biblically, there's no clear answer. 
There isn't a clear answer as to whether he does or whether he doesn't. You can make a case for both. But we do know this. James 1.14 says that ultimately, whatever thoughts we have, whatever those inclinations towards sin and the temptations that we have in our heads in terms of thoughts, whatever those thoughts are, it comes from our own sinful nature. We act on that. We talked about this last week. We act on the, 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 thin, the, the sinful thought, the, the sinful thought, <laughs> rent, rented tongue, the sinful thought, uh, we, we act on those um, based on our own flesh, our own desire to sin, our own sinful flesh. But see, here's the problem with your thoughts. They're yours. They're nobody else's. Nobody can take them from you. You can think about anything at any time. You can think whatever you want, and nobody can stop you. Did you ever think about that? No matter where you are, your thoughts are there too. So in terms of your thought life, there is zero accountability from a human standpoint. It's a little scary because we have great opportunity to think wrong things and right things. But there's no accountability. accountability. I watched a really dumb movie last night on Netflix, and part of the movie was they were trying to extract, uh, extract thoughts from this guy who had an alien encounter. <laughs> Tells you right there how great this movie was. Um, but so they put the little thing on his head and drilled into his head, and, you know, and he's going, and smoking, and, and there's like this, this monitor, you know, and they're showing what he's thinking at the time and extracting his thoughts. They haven't invented that machine yet. Raise your hand if you'd be willing to be the first one to try it out, though. I don't, I don't think we would. Would you, if I had the ability to plug into your thoughts, John Hartung, and pop them up on the screen, would you really want the rest of us to know your thoughts? No way, Jose. No way. No one, would, no one would, would want that because we all have a combination of good thoughts and bad thoughts just at any given time, just swimming around our heads. And that's why getting your thought life in, lo- in line with God's thoughts is so important because there's no accountability and it doesn't lead to life when we go down the wrong road. And here's the truth. What you think about determines the quality of your life. What you think about consistently determines the quality of life because your thoughts affect every other aspect about you. It affects how you relate to your friends, your parents, your spouse, whomever, your work, your coworkers. Your thoughts affect everything else about you. So today I want to talk about three thought areas um, using a a stoplight as an illustration. Um, The first area that is kind of the green light or what I call life-living thoughts. Not necessarily life-giving thoughts. You know, we think about something and it makes us feel good, which is good, but life-living thoughts. These are the thoughts we want to step into. Um, Philippians 4.8 says this, and we all know this verse. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about these things. Think about these things. And why does God say that? Because he created you for life. These things give us, in terms of, in terms of, of a, a living experience, gives us 
life. I mean, think about the words themselves. True, noble, praiseworthy, excellent. You know, even on a physiological level, a physical level, if you, when you say those words, physically, you feel better. I know it kind of sounds like, oh, it's mantra that we, you know, that kind of thing. But truthfully, those words, when we hear, them, when we hear us say them, it physically lifts us up. It gives us life. So those are life-living thoughts. The second one is what I call limiting thoughts, or you may have heard this as limiting beliefs. Um, so limiting thoughts, those are the thoughts that you hold in your mind that threaten to limit your achievement, or they limit your worldview. Um, so they're not necessarily sinful. They're kind of neutral, um, but they certainly aren't helpful. And they come from you placing meaning on an event. Not that this happened to me, but when I was taking piano lessons in fourth grade, <clears throat> I remember sitting at the piano and I'm playing my little, I don't know, Ode to Joy or whatever I was playing on piano. And halfway through, I literally forgot everything. Music is in front of me and I, I just, I blanked, kind of like what I do in sermons most of the time. I just blank out, right? And I sat there, and I remember freezing, and it was deathly quiet. And I remember just getting sick, and I may or may not have run off the stage crying like a little girl, <laughs> which I did. So the meaning that I place on that event in my life has repercussions the rest of my life, positively or negatively. I could either look at that event and say, you know what, boy, I just wasn't prepared. I'm going to, I'm going to, next time, man, I'm plowing through, I'm going to make sure I'm prepared. Or I could say, I'm going to take up soccer. You know, just quit, right? Um, I actually did both, but <laughs> uh, for those of you who are interested. So the, the, the limiting thoughts are, are those things that you put on, um, on an event. Some of the most happy people in the world have no money at all. Some of the most unhappy people in the world have billions and billions of dollars. Why is that? It's the meaning that you place on the event. It's what you tell yourself. It's those limiting, uh, the limiting thoughts keep you from achievement. Okay, so we have L, life living thoughts, L, limiting thoughts, and L, licentious thoughts. Sorry, I couldn't have two L's in just like a different letter. Basically, this is sinful thoughts, all right? So I thesaurus that one. Um, So sinful thoughts work like this. They pop into your mind, and they are sinful thoughts, meaning they do not give life. They spur death in you. Not necessarily physical death, like I'm going to think about something, keel over and die. But it's death in terms of your spiritual life, death in a relationship because of sin. They don't move us forward in our relationship with God or with others, and they don't hold any kind of positive promise. There are thoughts, actually, that are just potentially sinful. We talked about this two week, the last two weeks. The thought that pops into your head, the inclination that you have, you have a choice right there to act on that thought. If you, if you decide to think about that thought longer, if it's a sinful thought, I'll talk about this in a second, that is where sin comes in. That is where sin comes in. So entertaining the thought is the action, which means that it's sin. So does, it, does having that sinful thought pop into your head, and, and I'm saying pop, Does it pop into your head and then, is that sin? It could be if you think about it more and more and then act on it. That's where the sinful piece comes in. Here's an illustration. Several years ago, 
um, Orkin had this whole series of um, commercials. Remember these? Yeah, yeah, raise your hand if you remember these. Yeah, they were kind of creepy, but cool all at the same time. So basically, if you don't remember these, basically the doorbell rings, you open the door, and there's like this huge ant that says, can I come in, you know? Or another one, my favorite was the cockroach, pizza guy. You remember that one? Yeah. And so this is the illustration, is, um, is sin like this knocks on your door, and you have the option, the opportunity to sin by letting him in your house. That's what entertaining thoughts are. Just the fact that sin is knocking on your door does not mean you're sinning. It's if you entertain that thought. That's where the sin comes in. Um, Here's another way to say it. Raise your hand if... Raise your hand if you know um, that when it comes to thoughts that men and women think differently. Just raise your hand. Yeah, we know this. Thanks, Captain Obvious, right? Now, some of you have heard this before. But I want to talk about our two brains, men's brains and women's brains. Um, and you've probably heard this before, too. Men's brains are like waffles. Women's brains are like a plate of spaghetti. So you have those two illustrations in your head? Men's brains are... I'm going to save some marriages right here. I just know it. Here we go. Okay, so this is going to explain so much about your spouse. So picture a waffle. This is us, guys. Men have compartments in, we have compartments in our brain. At one, we do not multitask very well. At one moment, we're in this compartment, and then we move to this compartment, and then to this compartment, and then this, and then we just compartmentalize everything, right? Science says that most of these compartments have no words to describe what compartment we're in. Many of our compartments have nothing in them at all. As men, true. It's, this is true, right? So, and, and, and it drives your spouse crazy. So have you ever had that deal where you're, women, you're with your man and you're driving along and, you know, it's kind of quiet in the car and you think that that's an, an, an invitation for you to talk to him. So you're driving along in the car and he's just kind of staring, not saying anything. And, and you say, you know, you say, what are you thinking about? And what's our response? Nothing. Yeah, yeah, we all did it, right? We're all the same, we're all the same person. Nothing. You know what, you, ladies? That's true. We're not thinking about anything. We're zeroed out because we're in, we're in my empty waffle space at that point. That's how we think as guys. This all does tie in, by the way. I, I promise you. Um, so women, your, your brains are like spaghetti, all interwoven. You don't have compartments. You really don't, generally. You, you're all, all woven. Often when your man says nothing, you begin to think, well, I know he said nothing, but what is he trying to hide? Doesn't he love me anymore? Am I not attracted to him? Is he thinking about somebody else? Maybe I'm not good enough for him, or maybe he's not good enough for me. That's how your brain, they just, they just right? Like fireworks, you know, all over the place. You know, our firework is just, they're all over. My first clue for me that Kelly was different from me in thinking uh, was when we were first engaged, we went to the place that you pick out all the stuff for the wedding, and it's it, it, just tons of stuff, and I walk in, I go, I'm in my waffle place, I'm in, you know, I just kind of freak out, and so we're sitting there, we're looking at the colors, and we're trying to choose the, the color to, between two different shades of blue for the women's dresses. 
So I'm there looking at my beautiful fiancé, soon-to-be wife, just loving her and just enjoying her talk. I don't, even rem- I don't even remember what she's talking about at this point. And she's like, well, you know, what color should we have? And she's showing me two different things. And I'm like, oh, honey, I just don't care. I didn't say that. But that's what we think, ladies. We don't care. Just, you know, our crayon box is 12 colors, you know. <laughs> Ladies, you own the whole aisle of paint at the Home Depot store. We are so different. So listen, that's, how, that's when we realized, you know, I just said, it's blue. Just choose. I, really, I, I support you and love you. Just choose it. Okay, how about Wedgwood Blue? Great. I don't even know Wedgwood it is, but just choose that one. So we think differently. Okay, so now how does this play out? Think waffle and spaghetti. How does this play out for our brains and our minds in terms of our thoughts? There was a Vatican cleric um, who decided in the confession booth to start tallying what sins people confessed. thought the NSA was bad. Confession. So he's taking a survey, and based on the seven deadly sins, anybody from a Roman Catholic background, anybody know those seven deadly sins? You know, it's pride, envy, anger, gluttony, lust, laziness, and greed. Those are like the big seven uh, of sin. So he starts calculating, and he says for men, and this, this is hundreds and hundreds of people over many, many years, he says for men, our number one weakness, according to confession, is lust. Lust is that idea of seeing a woman and thinking about her in, uh, and I'll just let it go. You, we just lust after that person because of physical attractiveness. Why does that make sense in terms of our waffle brain? Because we see that woman, she's in the waffle square, and we just stay there. Does that make sense? So that's why we, we stop there. Jesus was teaching one time, and he said, you know, you guys, you, you know that adultery is a sin, physical, you know, adultery is a sin. Jesus says, I tell you that looking lustfully, entertaining that thought of having sex with that woman who's not your wife, entertaining that thought, you've already committed adultery with her. You've put her in the, in the, in the, the waffle square, and you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, women, the cleric said that women, the most confessed sin for women is envy and pride. Why? Because when you envy, you're not just wanting some. It's more relational. You're not just wanting someone else, uh, wanting what somebody else has. That's Tenth Commandment stuff. But you also don't believe that the other person should have it, and you should have it. You deserve it, and you want it. And in your spaghetti brain, you go into the comparison between you and the other person. Here's an example of that. Um, and actually, Kelly showed me this. Um, if you're in a coffee shop and you're there with other women and another woman walks into the coffee shop or if you're in your classroom and another, a, woman walks, a girl walks into the classroom, what is the first thing women do? <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm... That's, that's what you guys... That's what, you know, we have our issues. You have, we all have issues, right? But that, that's what you do because... You're, you're, you're giving a one over, you're comparing, you're, you're, you're envying maybe what they, that person, even if they're more beautiful than you, you'll find something to make yourself feel better. You know? it's what, generally, it's what we do. And listen, so the problem is that you give in to your thoughts unless you intentionally seek 
to become more and more like Christ. Unless you do that, the limiting thoughts and the litigious thoughts, the sinful thoughts, they're going to rule your life and you'll drift farther and farther away from God and further and further into sin. God wants you to flip that around. God wants you to leave it in your thought life. He wants you to pack up the car, get behind the driver's seat of your thoughts, and leave your pride, leave your envy, leave your lust, leave your greed, leave it all, because there's something better ahead for all of us. God says something amazing, too, is that you and I have the power over our thoughts. 2 Corinthians says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive. Someone said I was worthless as a kid. Take that thought captive. Someone said you'll never amount to much. Take that thought captive. Why? Because God gives us the power through his Holy Spirit, and there's something better than hanging on to those thoughts. There's a better attitude ahead. There's a better perspective of life ahead. There's a better health, better relationships, better purpose, better meaning, better fulfillment for you in life as you confess those thoughts and as you close the door on them. Following God's design for your life, that's what it's all about. It's the most fulfilling way to experience joy. So in closing, how do you do that? Let me just give you a real quick how-to. It's basically to intentionally confess and repent. But how do you do that? It's kind of what the IRS does. You need to audit your thoughts. Do an audit of your thoughts. When the IRS audits your finances, they set a time frame. They say, this is the amount of time we're going to be looking at. Um, Then they examine what's right. They identify what's wrong. And they encourage you to fix it. Do you ever notice that the IRS spells theirs? The IRS? For those visiting, that was one of those things that I mentioned before. Okay, so here's here's what you need to do. Ask yourself some questions. How have your thoughts been over the last month or the week or even this morning? If we were able to plug in a monitor and play what thoughts you allow yourself to entertain, could we play them in church? what thoughts are in your waffle compartment or on your spaghetti plate, the need to be taken captive and confessed. What limiting thoughts do you have about yourself that you've told yourself over and over again? And they run counter to what God says about you. Because here's the deal. God says you're a masterpiece. Did you know that? You're a masterpiece that he painted. God says that you're the light of the world. God says that you have value and worth, not because you love him, but because he loved you first. God says that you have the power to choose life over death. Imagine what your life would be like if you woke up every single morning and said, God, give me the filter to recognize the the limiting thoughts and the litigious thoughts, the sinful thoughts, and give me the power through your spirit, the courage to close the door on those thoughts as they're ringing the doorbell. What would that look like? I mean, you don't want to live the rest of your life in your past, do you? You don't want to live the rest of your life physically, emotionally, and spiritually weighed down because of these sinful thoughts that you keep coming up. And realistically, if it's a sin area or a weakness area for you, you may have those thoughts the rest of your life. But greater is he that's in you than that he that's in the world. 
and you can deal with it. You can handle it. There's something better ahead, and that's a life filled with purpose and passion, a life listening and hearing and walking with God into a life of power and courage. Listen, church, leave it because there's something better ahead. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to pray. As we pray today, actually, the next three weeks, we're going to do something just a little bit different um, in our prayer time at the end of the messages. Um, I'm going to start off with prayer, and then we're actually going to pray that prayer that we started off with, the most merciful God prayer. Um, so for those of you who grew up with this prayer, it would be like, again, ah, you're in a nice, warm, happy place. Um, but words will be up on the screen. In fact, there they are. Uh, and so I'll start with prayer, and then I'll lead us into this prayer. So let's pray. Father God, I want to pray um, for those of us um, in this place who do have identified thoughts that continue to just hound us, Father. Give us the courage and the strength first to identify those, maybe to get some help with those, but ultimately, Lord, just to close the door on those through the power of your Spirit. I pray for those who, who suffer and struggle with mental illness, somebody I know really, really well. Um, I pray that as this just, is, just mixes everything up, God, that even in that mix-up with mental illness, God, that your light and your love will shine through to those people, to that person. Father, I thank you that you've given us this opportunity this time of year to confess our thoughts. And so today, right now, we do that. And so we say together, Most merciful God, I confess that I am in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, forgive me, renew me, and lead me so that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And the beauty is that God does love you and he does forgive you. Amen.